You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The Apostle Paul, he writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, that the entire law can be summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has already, just a a few minutes, a few moments prior to this text here, Jesus has, has said, I am the fulfillment of the law. Everything that God has ever been about since the beginning of time, since He spoke the world and all that is created into existence. Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment, the culmination of all of that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and Jesus as the embodiment of love. The fulfillment of the law and the embodiment of love. And the entire law summed up in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. As they are all so very interconnected. At the end of chapter 5 in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see here in a few weeks in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see Jesus call us to to love our enemies. He'll say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But who doesn't do that? We'll see it in Luke chapter 10 when a, a man asks Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says what? Love God. Love people. Love God. Love others. Love God. Love your neighbor. Of course, wanting to justify himself there in Luke chapter 10, that that man that comes to Jesus asking that question, he needs a little more clarification. And so he asks a question that he shouldn't have asked, which elicits the parable of the Good Samaritan, he says, well, tell me exactly who's my neighbor. Define neighbor. Because he struggled with accepting, giving compassion toward the other. But if we don't love others, if we don't love those who are are other, 
than us, whether we realize it or not. If we don't love others, we don't love God. We'll talk more about this in a few weeks. But here's my reasoning for beginning this way. Being a part of the kingdom, being a part of the kingdom of God, being a part of the kingdom, it it demands for us to pledge our allegiance to the king of the kingdom. And if Christ is king, if he's king, then everything and everyone is reimagined reconfigured, reoriented to a way of life that is defined by the King. There is an alternative to this world and all that this world has to offer. There is a way of life that is not defined or guided by this world and it's the way of the kingdom. These words from Jesus, they're about the heart behind the actions. As so much of the Sermon on the Mount is, the heart behind our relationship with God and the heart behind our relationship with others. Are we driven by the will and the integrity of God? Will we choose to be a people of the kingdom? How does the redemptive action of God influence our interactions with others? In the grace that we receive as those who are a part of the kingdom, how does that grace get lived out through us in the way that we offer and extend it to others, or do we? And in particular with this text, how do we do conflict well? Really, when you look to these verses, it's a question of how far are you willing to go For people. You've heard it said, do not murder. Well, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I've gone all day long. Haven't killed anybody. Probably going to make it to the end of the day without killing anybody as long as I have a cup of coffee. Right. Right. But are you an angry person? It's a question of what's in your heart. Jesus says what ends with murder begins with a murderous heart, both of which are contrary to God. He continues, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, would be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka, which simply means empty-headed, but it was apparently something that everyone knew. It was a a no-no for the Jew. But the put down, you fool, that was apparently something that was, that was fair game. And I want you to know, all week long, I've been thinking about Mr. T. I pity the fool, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, in, in, in working with this, I, I pity the fool that doesn't love Jesus. And if, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, I pity the fool that doesn't know what I'm talking about. Which I know doesn't, doesn't make any sense to you again. Jesus, as he, as he does throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus refuses to allow us to be comfortable with a disconnected, external, powerless approach to our faith. And so He turns it within. He turns toward what's within our hearts. Jesus wanting us to all equally see our need for God, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done for us to each see that we need God in redemption, in salvation. We need Jesus equally. And he's speaking to this human condition in which we find ourselves. Speaking to this worldly context in which we find ourselves. This inundation of the world. A world that, that is so very gifted at disrespecting, demeaning, and degrading. Because it's a whole lot easier to destroy a relationship than it is to restore one. It's a whole lot easier to destroy a person, a person's heart, a person's inmost self than it is to restore. Some have become experts at tearing down. Some are are genius at the backhanded compliment. Now, full disclosure, I'm the oldest of three boys. Now, girls are guilty of this as well, right? But boys are notorious at this. I even have to remind myself whenever Jesus says, uh, the, the one who says, you fool. Because my boys, that's, I mean, that's, that's just common everyday language for them as they're talking to themselves. One of them, I won't tell you which one, made the mistake of saying it to me at a time of maybe um, a heightened discussion. And, uh, and, and very quickly, we had a, 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 a come to Jesus meeting. But boys especially, and I, and I know that, 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 that this can be, girls can be experts in this as well, but we're especially adept at just, at just ripping on each other. And, and, and as the father of, not only as the oldest of three boys is growing up, but as the father of, of, of three boys, I mean, I, I'm, I'm at least told that they love each other. But that's all in, in maybe in good fun, even though sometimes it gets taken to the extreme. And, and even some of, some of what they, they say or even how they go about talking, talking to one another. Because there's, there's been this evolution of, of language, have you noticed? Because, because bad can mean, can mean bad. And sick can mean sick. But sometimes bad is bad. Bad, which is actually good. And sometimes sick is sick, which is, which is also good. And even the word dope. I mean, have you thought about this? I mean, dope can still mean dope, but can, it can also mean dope, which is, which is sick and bad. <laughs> now, I realize all of that sounded pretty whack, but are you following me? <laughs> Bet. All right, I had a point, but now I'm confused. Hold on. Jesus is saying that there is uh, an anger, an anger that is just as bad as murder. And then he moves on in the same vein toward our language. And especially the language of tearing others down. Specifically, thinking 
in calling, calling someone a name, or belittling them, or dehumanizing them in a way that degrades who someone is. Someone who is created in the image of God. Demeaning what makes them them. Saying something, anything that causes a person to question their worth. He even goes as far as to say, don't even go to worship. Or think that your worship is worthy. Until you've made it right. Sometimes we'll connect this to, to communion, and I, I think there's a, an element of that here, but I think there's so much more involved. And then in the final verses, making things right with your adversary with this word of, of judgment at the end. And again, it seems that he's asking, are you willing to go out of your way for people? Jesus asked, what if we replaced our anger with a passion for reconciliation. As we saw earlier on in the chapter, so that that we might become peacemakers, those upon whom God pronounces blessing. Because it's easy to tear down. But the kingdom's not about easy. The kingdom's about building up. And tearing down That's the way of the world. What if your personal aim was always one of reconciliation? Always one of restoration? Never destruction? What if we fought to love? What if we fought to engage What if we fought to understand instead of dismissing or writing off? And so Jesus revealing the kingdom, He shows us another way. Instead of destroying, rebuilding, a way of reconciling in a God-ordained world, where relationships are worked for, where relationships are sacred rather than discarded and ignored. Let me try it this way. Do you know the single most driving factor in the world today? Anger. Think about it. Anger. Anger is the single most driving factor in the world. In the world, apart from the kingdom, which is the majority of the world. We live in a culture of information and agendas and clicks and views and live feeds and live streaming and every channel, every station, every network, every outlet wants to keep you on their content and tuned in. 
And do you know the best way they can do that? The absolute best and easiest way to keep you plugged in is to make you mad. Anger drives so much of our culture. Anger drives media. Anger drives social media. Anger drives television. Anger drives websites. Anger drives content. Anger drives news. Anger drives, is driving politics. Why? The answer is so easy. Because it works. Because anger, anger is its own reward. Stick with me on this. Chemically, biologically, physiologically, anger is a cheap and easy dopamine rush. Anger is its own payoff. And because of that, anger becomes addictive. That's the reason why angry people are so very unhappy. And it's the reason why unhappy people are so very angry. That's the reason why unhappy people invent ways of being angry about everything. That's why anger and anxiety go hand in hand. It's a vicious cycle. Because it's the only way that a a person who has that composition can get that dopamine fix. And if they can't get it by being happy or content or having joy, which takes work and intentionality and takes making the choice, why do all that when you can get that dopamine fix so much more easily by just being angry? Because anger is its own reward. It's physiological. You tracking with me? That's the reason why in some church cultures, when the preacher is angry and he's pounding the pulpit and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, everyone's going to hell except for us. And the response from those on the inside, because it makes no sense from those who are on the outside, but the response from those on the inside is, Amen, that's right. The reason behind all of that is because it checks that carnal box marked anger. Because somehow I can only have value if I have a fight. And what we don't realize is that the only fight that is going to satisfy us is the one that is not between flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Because ultimately, people are not the enemy. You get that. We get that, right? People are not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. And if ever he can convince us 
that people are the enemy rather than him, he has gained a huge foothold in our lives. And so Jesus comes along and he shows us another way. Now hold on a second, Jason. There, there was a time when Jesus was angry. When he turned over those tables and he, he, he made a, a whip and he chased out from the temple those who had made his father's house into a den of robbers. And isn't it the Apostle Paul who writes, in your anger, do not sin. Yes, absolutely. Both of which help us to better define and understand that there must be a righteous anger. And there must be an anger that is not righteous. There's a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger. And it's not just who we're angry with that makes that delineation. Because that's easy. It's about how we're angry. It's about what we do with our anger. And it's about how we see those with whom we are angry no matter who they are. Because I can be angry all day long. And I can stay all riled up. And I can let you know just how angry I am But the world is not changed by watching a particular network or posting vitriol on social media. Am I speaking truth or not? Jesus says that the world is impacted and changed by our being light in a world filled with darkness, not by adding more darkness to darkness. Jesus, in His righteous anger, did not sin. And in His anger, He never lost sight of people. He never lost sight of the kingdom. He never lost sight of God. He never lost sight of seeing people fallen as they may be. He never lost sight of seeing people as created In the image of God. So much so that even with his final breaths, his prayer was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And with all of the hate and the hate speak in the world today, I mean, doesn't it it just seem like the world is angry right now? But really, what should we expect? It's the world. How ludicrous to expect the world to behave godly. But you know what's most glaring? What's most glaring is when Christians behave like the world. Here's what Jesus is asking. Jesus is asking, how do you treat people? How do you treat your spouse? How do you talk to people? How do you talk to your spouse? 
How do you talk to your kids? Kids, how do you speak to your parents? Adults, how do you speak to your parents? How do you speak to the people that you, you know? How do you, how do you speak to the people that you don't? How do you see people? How do you see the other? Far too many who wear the name of Christ are small, angry, narrow, hostile people. One is too many. And if and when we are, Satan has the victory. People are not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. And we can't lose sight of that. And so Jesus says, congratulations on not killing anyone today. How are you doing with your anger? How are you doing in your relationships? How do you see people? Christians have always been a minority. We have never, ever, ever, ever been light in a world filled with light. We have always been and will always be light in a world filled with darkness because that is our calling until Christ returns. And so stop trying to be the majority. Believers have never been the majority. That's not the point. I take that back. There was one time when there was just Adam and Eve, but they messed all that up. And so two final take-home questions. Number one, who do you need to be reconciled with? It may be your fault. It may be their fault. There may be some ambiguity as to whose fault it is. You may not know anymore. But Jesus challenges us to be a people of restoration. To restore relationships. Can you restore without blame? And so number one, is there anyone you need to be reconciled with? And secondly, do you need to be reconciled to God? Because God offers us, through Christ, the capacity, the ability for both, both of those questions to, to no longer be questions in our minds. He, he provides for us the, the, the spirit and the strength and the, and the humility to, to make things right as far as it depends upon us with others. And through Christ, He has provided for us a way to be right with Him. To be restored unto Him. So this morning, if you're not right with God and we can bless you as your church family, we want want to be able to do that. And maybe for you, you've never taken that initial step in submitting your life to God through Christ. By being baptized into Him. Receiving reconciliation. The reconciliation God's made possible. Through Jesus.
And if that's you, I ask you to come forward. I'll meet you as you do, as we stand and sing.